Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University, prolific author and blogger at Bet On It. Brian has been a guest on The Politics Guys, I don't know how many times at this point, but a bunch of times. And that's because, well, he keeps on putting out great stuff, and I really enjoy talking with him about it. And today we're going to be discussing his latest, Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. Brian Kaplan, welcome back. Fantastic to be back, Michael. So I wanted to start with what has to be my favorite sentence in the entire book. I hate right. I hate politics, you write. Now, you explained that I feel like it's not just in that specific essay, but to me, it's a theme that kind of pops up throughout the book. And one of the many reasons you hate politics is that you're a libertarian. And I'll quote you to you, libertarians don't just lose every election. Policymakers normally summarily reject our position. Now, okay, sure, you're right. Libertarian Party candidates, they don't win elections. But in reading that, I thought, well, you know, it seems to me that libertarian perspectives or viewpoints on things, a bunch of things, really, free speech, gun ownership, uh, anti-regulation, at least on the Republican side, they seem to be a pretty powerful force in American politics. And so I wanted to get your take on on whether or not maybe you're overemphasizing to extent to which libertarians don't have much influence. Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Michael. And if you listen to people railing against you liberalism, you'd think that libertarianism is the reigning political philosophy for almost every government on earth. And I think we can agree that's wrong. In terms of how wrong it is, I agree that there are certain kinds of libertarian rhetoric that do make their way into the mouths of successful politicians. What I would just say is that when you look at what they're really doing, the rhetoric is basically not just exaggerated, it's absurdly exaggerated. You know, the idea that Republicans are trying to get rid of regulation, they're trying to go and maybe hold it back a bit, maybe get rid of a little bit, but there's no big effort by Republicans just to get rid of regulation. This is not true. And obviously, in terms of government spending, again, now it's not even clear that Republicans want to go and cut any major kind of spending noticeably. Uh, so I do think that it is fair. I, mean, I think that the best way to explain what, where people are confused is that generally right-wing parties are so short on intellectuals that they'll sort of take what they can get. 
As a result, when a libertarian professor shows up and says, hey, can I go and work with you guys? They often do get jobs, but their actual ability to shape policy in their desired direction is still quite low. It's more like we just need to hire some people for this job and libertarians don't hate us so much compared to other people you get. So we'll hire them. So, so I guess it's maybe more you feel like lip service might be paid to libertarian concepts, but that's just about as far as it goes outside of maybe some minimal effort in a few scattered areas. Yeah, or especially if there's some large group that wants libertarian policy, like there's a lot of people who just love guns. And they, at the same time, they're not especially articulate. They're not the kind of people that would go and write essays or do public debates generally. At least there's just a, it's a very tiny share. So when it happens to be that there's some libertarian intellectuals who agree with them, then sure, it's like, okay, great, we'll pay you to go talk to our group. But I think that's really confusing the direction of causation. It's not like some libertarian comes up with a theory of guns are good and then they convince tens of millions of people who then go and buy guns. Right, right. So <laughs> it's rather yeah. guns sell themselves yeah. by being cool and fun. And then when people try to take their guns away from them, hobbyists say, hey, is there some geek nerd that wants to go and stand up for us? Right. So, so in other words, basically, people start from their policy prep, their outcomes. And then if there is a libertarian argument that kind of can, after the fact, justify that, well, they'll be happy to latch on to it. Yeah, there's that. And like I said, another big part is just the Republicans, especially these days, are so short of any kind of professor that would be willing to be in the same room with them that it's just not that hard for a libertarian to get a government job, even a top government job. Uh, but you know, it doesn't mean that the libertarian gets to do what he wants. Right. I mean, well, I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a mid-range number of people that have such jobs. And it's like, well, I was able to go and pull the line for a bit on this one issue. So, all right, well, that's not what got you inspired, though. Wasn't it just to have like a giant round of abolition? Yeah, well, I mean, there's no way that was going to happen. Yeah, but I should point out, you say your hating or your dislike of politics goes well beyond the fact that people haven't adopted, more people haven't adopted a libertarian philosophy or don't vote for libertarian candidates. It's more than about theory or even results. Uh, at one point you say, uh, uh, you talk about hyperbole and, and you write, people should speak literal, measured truth or be silent. And when I read that, I thought, well, sure. And we should all love each other and so forth. I mean, it sounds like you're describing politics on the planet Vulcan or something like that. And so I'm wondering, you know, do you feel like maybe your standards are, are, are more than a little bit too high here? I think so. I mean, these are standards that I would hold a normal person to in conversation. It's not like I meet a person in the street and say, hey, have you given all your money to charity? No. Well, then get out of my way, you monster. I mean, the standard of a person should not go and speak with just a bunch of ridiculous hyperbole and lies. I think this is just a normal standard that we have in regular life. I think that, you know, I mean, a lot of what I am doing is saying that we should hold people in government to the same standards that we hold just a regular person, which, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. If there was someone that murders someone really, just an ordinary, you know, if there was just an ordinary person who went and committed murders, you say, yeah, you're a terrible person. It's like, well, I went and committed a bunch of murders when I was working for the government. It's like, well, then I guess that's all right, because hmm, why would that be all right? I mean, I would just say that I think my standards are not anything like the Sermon on the Mount. It's just very basic human decency. 
so yeah, I don't think that they really are all that high. Actually, so, so so not so much. You're okay with I guess what we would call maybe spin and exaggeration. And when it, when it gets to what I would might see as Trumpian levels, but Trump I think was only kind of the exemplar of that. That that it becomes really an issue. Well, what I would say is that the kind of hyperbole that I'll tolerate is the kind that's obviously ironic, like a beer commercial. All right, the person speaking the beer commercial, like no one is so daft as to think that you really will open a six pack and then there'll be a, an army of girls in bikinis that show up. I mean, that's one where it's just like, all right, it's kind of, it's funny to watch. No one takes it seriously. You know, what's scary about politics is you realize, well, like they're talking this way because there are a lot of people who are so fanatical they will take it seriously. I know I remember being in the Fox News green room a couple of years ago. This was actually 2020. And there was one of the anchors, not Tucker, somebody else, who just said, look, if Biden wins, this country will collapse in a matter of not years or months, but weeks. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, hmm, well, <laughs> you better be shorting the whole market then, because this is a pretty likely scenario. I mean, the way that I like to think about it is this. So imagine that you're eating lunch with a friend and they talk to you the way that a politician talks at a speech. Wouldn't you just want to take a bath? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you just want to get out of there. Yeah. You no, know, if your friend looks you in the eye and says, I assure you that this country will be in complete collapse in a matter of not years or months, but weeks. This is like, I'm a human being here. There's no cameras. Just talk like a person, dude. All right. That, you know, that, that doesn't seem unreasonable. Sure. Um, but, but that doesn't even, well, it starts to scratch the surface of why you, you, you hate politics, but it's not just hyperbole. It's not just the lack of libertarian idea, real libertarian ideas. Uh, you also talk about social desirability bias. And I, I thought that's maybe a little less clear on the surface than those other two. So maybe you could first explain what you mean by that and then why you think it's such a big problem in modern American politics. Great. And I'm glad you're letting me back up and explain it, Michael, because uh, it's worth talking. explaining. Yeah, social desirability bias, it is the psychological concept that relative to how important it is, is the least discussed in the world, I think. It is the, the most under-discussed concept in academic psychology. It's a really simple idea. It just says that when the truth is ugly, people lie. And if the lies become ubiquitous enough, then we lose our ability to even recognize that it is a lie. Really simple example would be, am I fat? And there's only one socially acceptable answer to that. Of course not. You're lovely just the way you are, Brian. No, no, you're fine. You're wonderful. All right, so that's one. But you can even see this in things as simple as, well, want to come to my party on Friday? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I can't. And it's like, can't? Will you be in chains? Will you be on Mars? What do you mean you can't? It's a polite way of saying I don't want to. What I say in this book is that once you understand the idea of social desirability bias, you can never really hear politics the same way because the way the politicians talk, it is recently reverse engineered to be as full of social desirability bias as possible, like per minute, per second, per word. Like, really, if you just listen to them after understanding this, it's like, I don't know if there's anything that they're saying that is true. It's all just a giant pack of ridiculous, happy, happy, slappy lies, right? Where... It, it, it's just like you listen to it and like, like they say, you know, this way we do this, America will live up to its promise of being the greatest country in the world. Like we have to do this exact thing to live up to this promise made by who of being the greatest country in the world measured by what exactly. 
And this is what I'll say, like, if you're honest, and you listen to the politicians that you like, the ones that you think you agree with, and you just start actually scoring their sentences, are they literally true? You know, it's like, hardly anything they're saying is literally true. It's just so exaggerated, but often just saying things that we couldn't possibly write. Like, you know, nothing is more important than education. How about food? Is food more important than education? Obviously it is. You have to have one or the other, you'd rather food, right? And this is just the way that politics works political rhetoric, but also political policy. Or like, Here's another example that really sticks with me. If you were to think about what would be the honest case for launching a war, the honest case would be something like there's a 50% chance this war makes things better, 30% chance it makes no difference, 20% chance that it makes things worse. Those are good odds. Let's do it. That would be an honest case for a war because there's just so much uncertainty about how wars turn out. And yet, can you think of any time any politician has just put his cards on the table and made this argument? Can't think of any in, any in human history. Instead, it's always the absurd lies of as long as we do our best, we will win for sure. And I mean, part of that, obviously, I'm, I'm sure politicians would say, well, a big part of that is that is that people can't handle the truth or that they need they need lies or exaggerations to give them the courage to go on. And if Churchill had said, well, you know, we'll fight for a while. And if it doesn't work out, then I guess we'll all learn German or something. I mean, that's that's not going to that's not going to get them to storm the beaches and all that. So I, don't, do you feel that that's a reasonable counter argument? Well, I would say just to start to admit very frankly, look, the only way to get good results is with lies. It's like, hmm. Is there a potential for abuse here? <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, huh, sounds like there's a very high potential for abuse. And then you just think, like, how often is it really that the lies had to be done in order to go and save civilization or anything close? Like, yeah, hardly ever. And then you start saying, so what could go wrong? It's like, well, once you accept the idea that it's okay to go and lie in order to get your political policies through, then... Will people start lying to make things that aren't clearly good go through? Yeah. Will they lie to make bad things go through? Yeah. And it's like, is it even clear that any that the net thing is good? I mean, most of the time, politicians go and give a pack of lies. And it's like, well, if we were really honest about it, what would really happen? Um, the way that I put it is that, you know, I mean, I, I've been asked, maybe you'll say, like, there's some libertarian angle to this. I'll say, well, here's the angle. Given that it's really hard to motivate people unless you go and exaggerate and tell a bunch of lies, if people couldn't tell these lies anymore, then people wouldn't be motivated and then government would do a lot less. Although when you think about it, it's like hmm, the very fact that we would just be left with the stuff that could be defended in honest terms, and that's what government would be left doing. It's like, hmm, that sounds like an improvement to me anyway. I mean, like, what, are, like, what is it about these things that's so great that you can't just defend them honestly? And even the Churchill speech, if you were to just say, look, there's a good chance we're going to lose, but like, it's a choice between losing this war and being conquered by these monsters, and like, this is a time to go and bet our lives. I, at least that one would be honest, at least. Well, yeah, and I guess... You I could, think, I mean, yeah. Actually, that, that one, the way he describes it, I mean, like, it, it does end with, we'll, we will never surrender, which, uh, guess what? Every group in, in history yeah, has yeah. ever said they'll surrender, had previously said... Uh, or every group that has ever surrendered had previously said they would never surrender. Right? Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Even the Japanese surrendered. <laughs> you know, the kamikaze country surrendered. But, but, but wait, there's more because even if we put aside the hyperbole and the, and, and the lying and, and all of this, the social desirability bias, 
there's still, and this one I agree with you on, a numeracy. Uh, you know, I have a big problem with this. You do, you do, understandably, as an economist, you write, people should focus on what's quantitatively important, not what thrills the masses. And I guess I have two reactions. That my first said, yeah, I agree, but then I think, well, who am I to decide what's important for the masses? And and more than that, it feels to me like a lot of things that are really some of the most important things in life, things like freedom or equality or happiness, they can't necessarily be quantified all that well. There's an inherent subjectivity. So while while I agree with you on some level. I think kind of operationalizing that becomes incredibly difficult. And I wanted to get your, your take on that. Yeah, so I say it's actually much easier to operationalize it than you're thinking because actions speak louder than words and people that fall in love with hyperbolic rhetoric and enumerate rhetoric, when you look at their actions, their actions are much more reasonable. You'll see people saying, look, you can't put a price on safety. And then guess what? They don't live in the safest neighborhood in, uh, the safest neighborhood in their area. If you couldn't put a price on it, they would be willing to spend up to every penny they had in order to move their safety level up by the tiniest amount. Basically, nobody does that. Um, anytime someone says, you know, nothing is more important to me than X, so do you put all your spare resources into X? No. So then I guess it's not true that nothing is more, that nothing's more important than that. And again, this is not a, more important according to me. It's more important according to you. Uh, when someone says, well, you know, like, look, we can't tolerate any risk of terrorism, it's like, well, you're flying. So, yeah, you're tolerating some risk of terrorism. And again, on many of the things like, you know, just freedom in general, that's one where you can say, all right, well, are people willing to go and move for it? That's one, well, will they? Well, here's a case where people were moving for freedom during COVID. We saw actual substantial numbers of people deliberately move to less regulated, laxer states. Almost no one moved into the stricter states. So that's one where you can say, well, you can't put a price on freedom or health. It's like, well, guess what? You can, and it looks like people care more about their freedom and their health. Well, I, I think uh, at this yeah, I think this is where your libertarianism comes out. Well, it comes out all over the place, but but I, I guess my problem with this and why I'm not a libertarian is it seems to me there's an underlying assumption here that people are able to rationally and reasonably weigh their options. They have, if not perfect, very good information about all their choices. They're not being coerced in any way. And so, I mean, I think there are a lot of sort of basic market fundamental ideas that are being violated here in people's everyday life decisions, which is why I think I have a problem applying the logic of, well, people are making these decisions. I would say, yeah, but with very imperfect un information under a lot of constraints, under nothing like ideal or even close to ideal market conditions. I, what do you think about that? Well, this takes us back full circle to beating your question, Michael. You started with the question of who am I to go and second guess what people want? And then I said, well, it's not me second-guessing them. Their own actions second-guess the rhetoric. And then you come to the question of, well, but the real world doesn't satisfy all these extremely strong assumptions. I am the very first to admit, yeah, the real world doesn't satisfy the assumptions. And I'm even happy to say the real world is at least moderately far. Uh, but still, the difference between, do, will you spend all of your money to get an infinitesimal extra amount of safety which people will say but not do, I will still say, yeah, that second thing shows a, a lot more common sense than the first thing. It is just crazy to say I'll give up everything I have to get 0.01% more safety. And the good news is that hardly anybody is so foolish as to actually do it. Now, you may say, well, but their actions aren't based upon perfect information or anything close. Like, yeah, that's true. 
Uh, but the rhetoric is based on something even worse. It's just so infused with emotion and just refusal to accept any trade-off. Uh, so yeah, like, you know, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, like, like, like I'm very willing to call their people idiots. <laughs> right? And even when they're spending their own money, I will call like, not to their face, but behind their backs. Sure, of I'll course, say, yeah. That person is. Right? And, you know, like, you, there's all kinds of demographic predictors. Like, I see a teenager doing something, and I'm like, oh, stupid teenagers. You know, like, I can't believe it. And I'll look back at my own decisions and see, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Blew my hand up <laughs> playing with illegal explosives. Right? So there's that. There's that. Uh, but even so, while being open, very open-minded about people's idiocy, I'm still willing to go and say, well, when are people more and less reasonable? Which people have at least some kind of common sense? And yeah, that's where I will say, I mean, like, honestly, I will say there's you know, not only libertarians, but economists often get annoyed at me for being so judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, yeah, what a bunch of fools. <laughs> Damn fools. What do they know? Right. And they're like, like, it's not very libertarian. It's like, yeah, well, I got to be honest first. I mean, being honest is more important than being libertarian to me. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I wanted to get back to something you at least touched on earlier. You talked about how well, I talked about people, uh, their actions speaking more strongly than what they might say to a survey surveyors. And, and certainly I agree with you on that. And I think this links in really well to a lot of your work. I mean, for instance, you named your blog Bet On It. And it's connected, I think, to all of this stuff. And what point you write in the book, people shouldn't make claims they won't bet on. And I think this is really important and an interesting idea. And I was hoping you kind of explain uh, to listeners who don't already know why you named the blog Bet On It and how this kind of links into your larger sort of philosophy that really, I think, touches on a lot of this stuff we've been talking about so far. So in my first book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, I talked a lot about how rationality itself is sensitive to incentives and people are uh, the very same person will be extremely irrational in some circumstances, at least a lot more rational in others. I say the very best test of this story is just to listen to a person say something ridiculous and then ask to bet them. You'll notice it is, this is not a great way to make a pile of money, actually, because even people who seem hyperbolic and emotionally unstable once you actually ask them to put some money down on the table and to specify precisely what counts as being right or wrong, they have what we call in psychology metacognitive awareness. They realize, oh, gee, I was speaking out of school and making stuff up, and I don't want to lose all my money just because I had a <laughs> impulsive outburst of poetry. So, yeah, you can just see that offering to bet somebody raises their level of intellectual self-discipline, raises the degree of rationality. Of course, you can sometimes get people to bet, 
And this is one of my main public hobbies is just challenging people to say things that I think are probably false to bet me. One lesson of this is that most people just won't bet at any odds for anything. They just run for the hills. Another one is that when people are willing to bet, they generally tone down what they're saying, not just a little bit. They tone down what they're saying a lot. Right? And then finally, it's just a great way of getting yourself to be more disciplined to say, well, what does this even mean? What would count as me being right or wrong? An example that's coming up in a future post in my blog. Now, you may have heard about the Paul Ehrlich, Julian Simon bet, where Paul Ehrlich was someone who said that where mankind is doomed and hundreds of millions are going to starve to death and we're running out of precious resources. Julian Simon was an economist who said, no, we're not. Simon said, pick any basket of natural resources and any reasonable long time period, and I bet you that it will be cheaper. And Simon crushed Ehrlich in that bet. Now, what people don't know, and what I talk about in a forthcoming post, is that a few years later, Ehrlich went and proposed 15 new bets to Simon. Uh, these were, and now what's, here's the cool thing. Now, so Simon refused all the bets. And if you look at them, they are, on the one, you know, on one hand, they're kind of sucker bets because they're things like the amount of, see, of ocean-caught fish per capita will decline over a certain period. And it's like, okay, yeah, well, like, so this is ignoring fish farming, and this is, ta- and this is knowing that world population is going to grow, and, of course, fishing is a common, so we shouldn't expect the fish population to grow. Right? But what's striking is that all 15 of these bets are extremely measured. Ehrlich had a reputation for saying, hundreds of millions will die. But when he wanted to go and actually redeem his reputation after being crushed in this bet, he offered 15 mild-mannered claims, none of which was even remotely in the ballpark of human extinction or apocalypse. It was enough to make even this infamous blowhard become a reasonable human being. Um, Now, the reason why I named my, my blog this, I don't just have a theory. I have done a lot of these bets. And my current record is I've won all 23 of the 23 bets that have resolved. Rumors keep surfacing that I've lost a bet. Um, That is not true. I may be on track to lose a couple of bets, but I haven't lost yet. And the one time that it looked like I was almost definitely going to win, I actually, by the skin of my teeth, won in the end, which was a bet that uh, was basically a bet uh, done in the around 2010 where I said that there wouldn't be a single country would leave the EU if it had a population over 10 million. I said, and the cutoff date was January 1st, 2020. And yeah, Brexit passed in 2016, but the wording of the bet was very clear. It said must officially leave and a real, a non-binding referendum is definitely not officially leaves. And I just waited for things to pan out. And in the end I won by the skin of my teeth, Uh, but I still felt very good about it because the, re- the, uh, the inspiration for that bet was columnist Mark Stein saying the EU would collapse in a couple of years. And then to get him to bet me, I offered him something much better than what he was saying. So while he almost won our bet, he didn't come within a country mile of actually having his original statement be true. Yeah, that, that's, you know, that's interesting. You, you mentioned that example. Maybe this means that you've gotten into my subconscious in a way that maybe I should be worried about. I don't know, but I was uh, listening to a podcaster or a podcast guest say something about how uh, uh, the EU will cease to exist as an entity within the next decade. And and someone asked me what I thought about it, who recommended it. And I said, well, you know, it was interesting, but I wouldn't invest based on his advice. And that may be a little bit of Brian Kaplan uh, invading my my thought process for better or for worse. So you've, you've made an impact, I guess. Uh, 
Right? And if you, by the way, if you want to get an idea about how rational people really are, the fact that it's so hard to actually get people to bet on their hyperbole to me shows that on a deep level, there just aren't many people that are truly crazy. Most people actually, in the end, have enough common sense to realize there's a big difference between me shooting my mouth off and I know something. So like as an economist, I think it's time to say, huh, well, it's pretty impressive, actually, to think that true all the way down to their bones fools are so rare that it's really hard to make much money off of them. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think some people say, hold on, politicians bet on their positions all the time, right? They say, I'm going to do this, that, and 38 other magnificent things that will make America great again or save the country or what have you. And hey, if voters don't feel those things are done, but they hold them accountable in the next election, at least in theory, that's how it works. But I, I'm guessing you don't see that as really betting on in, in a similar way. And I was hoping you could talk about that. Yeah, well, like you just said, in theory, yeah, if, you know, if uh, voters were listening to politicians, taking the words literally, and then checking the facts, then it'd be, democracy would be a fine system. It's just none of that is true. And it's not just a little bit false. It's not just like saying people don't know all the ingredients of the breakfast cereal, so they're not really fully rational consumers of breakfast cereal. This is politicians make, the, make claims that are so over the top and saying, look, this will make our country the best in the world in this. And then people go, yay. And then a few years later, go, come around. And, it's, and people usually don't even check and go back to go and see whether or not there was, there's a, a, a discrepancy between what happened and what the person said. I mean, with Trump, it's sort of like shooting fish in a barrel because his claims are so absurd and pretty much almost nothing that he says comes true. And, he, and it, does he lose fans over this? I mean, in a way, just by him looking at the camera and saying, like, I fulfilled everything I ever promised and more. <laughs> very trying thing to say. I, you, know, you know, you can say, well, this is an egregious case. It's like, look, this is an egregious case, but the fact that the guy was even in the ballpark of ever winning shows it's a serious problem. You know, if, if this is not just like one, you know, one alderman in some town in Minnesota made some ridiculous lies and got reelected. It's the, or like, we're almost got reelected. It's the president of the United States. You can't go and say it's not a big deal. Right. But in any case, it's just like, look, Trump is more egregious, but like if you just go and look at his opponents, divide, fine, divide by two or three, but it's the same kind of absurd rhetoric that people in a way they don't even notice. It's like, well, of course, what politicians say will just be a ridiculous pack of fanatical lies. This is like, what kind of a system is that? And again, and it's not supposed to be funny either. No, no. That's what, you know, I, I, I am mindful of. A lot of commercials also make a bunch of uh, say a bunch of things that are ridiculous lies, but it's the one where it's like everyone knows it's supposed to be funny, whereas politics is deathly serious and people are acting like it's their religion. You know, you're like, don't go and laugh at our political beliefs, whereas like you can laugh at a beer commercial and like who's going to get mad at you over that? I wonder if part of the the problem then is if people aren't paying enough attention, aren't bothering to hold politicians accountable, then there's there's some issue with the the system breaking down and that people don't feel like there's enough in it for them to hold them accountable. And on some level, right, if you're one vote out of a, you know, a couple hundred million, uh, it's it really doesn't make a difference in in most instances if you vote for Trump or Biden or, or Daffy Duck or what have you. And so if you can get some psychological value, our emotional value out of being a Trumper or a progressive or something like that, well, then 
that seems like on an individual basis, that's a rational decision. It's just collectively irrational, no? Yeah, that's exactly the point of my book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, where I say that you know, we, we think about democracies being like a market. I say, no, it's more like there's a common pool of water which serves two functions. One, it's our drinking water, and two, it's where we throw our garbage. Um, the throwing the garbage, this is the way people think about politics. This is the, the extremely intellectually irresponsible way that people talk about issues, think about issues, collect information. However, the garbage disposal, this is the policies that we live under. So the way that I described it, you know, a lot of economists even say, well, the voters, it's like they go to the store and they put a bunch of policies on the shopping cart, and this is how democracy works. And I say, well, it's not like that at all, because the policies you get have nothing to do with what you put in the cart. You as an individual can't change what policies are. So yeah, it's really more like anybody who wants can go and throw their junk into the common water supply, put all of your psychological baggage in there. I like thinking about it as like throwing your dirty oil or worse into the common water supply. And unfortunately, this is where we drink. So put your, put your cup into that pond of polluted water and drink it. That's what politics delivers to us. Getting people to care about those externalities just can be incredibly challenging. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, economists have long said, well, we need to have government go and change incentives so that people will consider the negative effects of their behavior on society. But the system that we use to do this is democracy, which is specifically designed to strip people from any of any incentive to think about the effects of their behavior on others and just to treat it like a big group therapy session. <laughs> yeah, I like that description. Now, another, yet another problem yeah, you, you have with, with democracy, with people in politics, is what you call my side bias. Uh, other people might call it tribalism, same basic idea. And, and I, I, I'm with you. I, I think you're right. You know, we should try much harder to, to check our own assumptions, check our group's assumptions, and to be fair to outgroups. Uh, I guess where I struggle is in, in trying to figure out how we do more than just say that, right? How we actually make that any a reality at any level that it would make a difference. And because I, I can't imagine anyone disagreeing with you about, well, I can, but that's another story. <laughs> but but <laughs> I, I, is there is there? Do you think there's any way to actually do this on a non-trivial level? Yeah, you know, like if you know, like first of all, you have to realize like you've got to be the change you want to see in the world. You're the person that you're able to improve. So if you want to improve, just start doing it. There's some pretty standard boxes you can check, like before you criticize a view, say, have I ever read any actual defense of this view from someone who really believed it? There's that one. Uh, there is, well, saying, well, okay, this is my view. What, were, what are some of the best pieces of evidence against it? Let's think of counterexamples. I mean, these are just things that you can go and do. I mean, it's, uh, and then uh, in the book, I actually have several chapters on my idea of the ideological Turing test, which is an actual test that you can put yourself to. This is one where you assume the burden of being able to describe a view that you disagree with to the satisfaction of people that actually hold that view. So like the, the easiest version is you just go and email people that you disagree with and say, this is my, your view as I understand it. Do I have it right? And to see whether you get you know, especially smart adherence to the view to say, yes, you've expressed my view correctly. And if not say, okay, well, what do I need to do to improve it? Let me try again. Uh, the really good version of this is we can actually go and have a tournament where Different people who claim, oh, I'm so good, I'm so free of my side, my, of my side bias, they can actually go in a double-blind situation, and I'm going to go and write down my sincere view, I'm going to write, write down simulations of views that I disagree with as if I agreed with them, 
And you, know, you can fill in every box. I'm going to go and write a criticism of my view. I'm going to write a defense of the other view. I'm going to write a criticism of the other view, defense of my own view. And you can go against an opponent. And then you can have a panel of judges just to see, can we tell whether you, we can basically, can we, can we tell the difference between you and a sincere inherent of the view? Doesn't mean you're right, but it's definitely impressive if a person who strongly disagrees with the view can defend it to the satisfaction of adherence when they don't know who is doing the defending. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's a that's a great strategy. But of course, it that for that to work, you'd need somebody who would be able, willing to commit the time and energy to that. And to me, that requires a societal structure that really emphasizes the value of critical inquiry and pursuit of truth, as opposed to sort of tribal uh, allegiances and. I don't know that. Well, we certainly have pockets of that. I, I feel like you're like that. And, and a lot of listeners on, on the podcast are else they wouldn't be listening to a bipartisan show. But it, it, sometimes it feels like we're struggling against a larger societal tide that doesn't believe in those values that, that we do. Yeah, well, it's not just society. It's humanity. Right? Yeah, well, it's, the yeah. Stuff ever, it's even worse. Yeah. Ever, ever been in common. Now, look, you can either go and complain and say that the world is messed up or you can try to be better. Yeah. That, no, I mean, it, yeah. things are true, but it's not very constructive to go and say, oh man, everything sucks. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. like, well, uh, not really. Look, okay. Um, you could stop sucking. Couldn't you? <laughs> you could at least a, suck less. A little less suckage. Uh, yeah. 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 So try to suck less. And, you know, this is, this is something, as you pointed out, you've been looking at for a long time now. I mean, I remember when I first picked up the myth of the rational voter in 2007, and I, I, I loved it. And, uh, but I'm wondering now, it's been uh, a lot of years since that came out. Has anything? 16. Yeah, there you go. That you, I, that's why you're the economist, not the political scientist. You can do the math in your head just like that. <laughs> anyway, but <laughs> yeah, genius. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really impressive. But anyway, so has anything changed fundamentally? Have we gotten worse, better, or is it still pretty much the same landscape as you kind of laid out there uh, in 2007? I'm honestly kind of unclear on wh whether things have actually gotten worse. I tend to think that. A lot of what we think of as things having gotten worse is just that the badness is more obvious than it used to be, because social media has just made it easier to find the most horrifyingly asinine defenders of any particular view, <laughs> yeah. as well as to find view as to find defenders of views that you weren't you would never have met such a person in the past. You know, like you know, when I was growing up, you would never actually meet a Nazi, sure, yeah. <laughs> but now you can just go to Twitter and there's Nazis there. So that's changed. Yeah. Now, does this mean that Twitter caused Nazis to exist? Probably to some extent it did, because it did give them a way of reaching other people that would otherwise not become Nazis. And clearly a big part of it is it just it made it possible for the world to become aware of a bunch of fringe views that previously you could have only known through the bad luck to know them in person. And now they have a platform. Uh, so I think that at least a lot of the perceived decline is just greater visibility of the worst in human beings. So there's that. Uh, I, I mean, I, what I would say is that you also need to consider that the best of human beings is also more visible than it used to be. So you know, when back in the, when I was, you know, like when I was in high school, there was really no way for a professor like me to get much of an audience. And now, you know, like I can have 10,000 people reading me every day which is small time in the grand scheme of things. Although I'll say that I think the quality of my listeners is really good. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, like, Big one, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, my audience are people that themselves themselves have their own audiences, so you can imagine it's a leverage effect. But, you know, in the 80s, like, the worst of people basically could only torment the people that they personally knew, but the best of people also might have just a few students that would listen to them. And now both groups are able to get much bigger audiences, so I say the variance of the world has gone way up. I mean, it's definitely one where, like, whether no matter how good or how bad you are, you can find something for yourself. Um, you know, I mean, I would say that you think about almost all progress just comes from the tale of really, really good stuff. Then you might say the world is actually better than it used to be. That's sort of true in anything that's creative. Uh, in politics, on the other hand, it really matters well, more of what is the average of what's happening. I think I, I will say that today versus, say, 25 years ago, I think that the mainstream of politics is just kookier than it used to be. There's just more stuff that is just kind of head scratching and just like, I did not see that coming. Um, you know, like some of it is, is just, it's just hard to envision the future. You know, like to me, like that transgenderism would ever become an issue one way or the other is just really weird. Yeah. It would be anything more like above, it would even make the top thousand issues to me sort of like, what, what happened? This is really strange. I don't care what you think about the issue. It's strange. Do you feel like the, the strangeness and the irrationality is, is sort of distributed more or less evenly? Because I know a lot that a lot of folks on the left will, will say, well, you know, we got these Trump Trumpy sort of figures and it's mostly the right. And it's pretty it, it's weighted much more toward the right than the left. And I'm wondering what your what your take on that is. Yeah, my view is that a lot of this is a matter of tone rather than intellectual value. I think both sides are really crazy, and definitely their extreme sides are really crazy. It's just that a right-wing crazy thing is like Pizzagate, and a left-wing crazy thing is socialism. Okay. Like, no, I, I would not equate those, but that's fine. It's another podcast. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, I can, like, uh, I consider socialism much like, in, in a relevant way, socialism is way crazier yeah, than Pizzagate. Uh -huh. But, yeah. I mean, of course, Pizzagate, yeah, but it's like so specific, and it's like written, you know, like, or yes, but what does it really matter? It's like a really weird view about something that's not very important. Whereas, like, uh, like looking at looking at the history and saying, "Oh, socialism was really great; it just wasn't tried properly, whatever." And that, to me, is just like, "All right, you are a complete whack job," and I'm not very interested in what you have to say. Um, again, if you just sort of look at left wing versus right wing media, in right wing media, it's just very kooky and low status in the way that they talk, but. Left-wing media, when I, when I watch it, so like my wife usually falls asleep to PBS and I go in there. And again, I'm like, on the one hand, this clearly is designed to appeal to college graduates and people think of themselves as being not completely crazy. But on the other hand, I'll say, it's completely crazy what they're doing here. Kind of a higher There's, level of awfulness. Yeah, okay, yeah. I got you. Yeah, so, you know, so like, for example, like a, a two weeks ago, I went in and there was a big screen on PBS saying, did you know that... You know, 99, you know, human DNA is 99.1% identical, right? It's like, well, why are they telling people this? Obviously, it's there as part of a giant left-wing agenda to say that genes are not important for human outcomes. But if you think about it, if you know any genetics at all, you realize this is deliberately, horribly deceptive. Most obviously, we know there are a bunch of single gene disorders that lead to devastating defe defects. Right? You know, like, like Down syndrome, all right? Just, just like what chromosomes off. So you're, you know, you're, you're like, did you know that the DNA of someone with Down syndrome is more is 99.99% identical to that of someone like of like their 
doppelganger that didn't have done, that didn't have that chromosomal defect. All right, fine. But guess what? They still have 30 less IQ points. They still lose eight inches of height. They still have reduced life expectancy of decades. And so there's that. So yeah, we know that there's a bunch of single gene disorders with devastating effects. So it doesn't like it is totally irrelevant to say that human beings share 99% of their DNA. And on top of it, also human beings and chimps share like 98.5. So what? That shows there's no important genetic differences between humans and chimpanzees. Sometimes, and it's one where you know that on the one hand they're putting it there to appeal to a highly educated audience, but they are spreading total errant, ridiculous, conspiratorial nonsense in a higher status garb. So yeah, when I see that, I just say like, if you're going to put that on your on your show and then feel superior to people for Pizzagate, yeah, you're not better than Pizzagate people. Let's talk about voting. I mean, if, if anything, it's like be ashamed that like that you have your fancy credentials and you still go and nod your head in agreement at this ridiculous, no, you know, as close to a lie as you can get without actually being a lie. Well, let's move on and talk yeah, about. Yeah, the uh, go ahead. I think you said ninety-nine percent. Ninety-nine point one is a Breaking Bad purity uh, <laughs> <laughs> of methamphetamine there you go. that okay, I just watched. So, yes, I, let me not. Put words into the mouth of PBS, and it's ninety nine point ninety nine point one, which is a totally different show, much well, better. <laughs> well, we we have we've now done it, Brian. We've talked about we brought you brought up Nazis and meth in, in the same podcast episode. This may be a first for for the podcast, so that's there's that. Yeah, well, it was Godwin's law, and then there's Brian Cranston's law, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, let's talk about voting because I want to ask you about this. You don't vote, and I know you don't vote. Because you have an essay in this collection called Why I Don't Vote. And I think a lot of people hear all this and say, wait a second. Here's this guy saying we can be better and do better. And even if it, you know, we should try, right? And who doesn't vote? Well, well what's the deal? It begins with a argument from my friend, philosopher Jason Brennan. He's in a book called The Ethics of Voting, uh, where he says a number of things. But one of them is... Effective altruism, when you're going to go and make a philanthropic contribution, you should go and do the best you can with the resources you've got, and then combine that with the odds that you, even if you're extremely well-informed and proven electoral outcome is very small, so you do more for the world by making a charitable donation, by giving to the Against Malaria Foundation or deworming or something like that. So that's the starting point that I would have is that... Uh, while you know, so again, like you know, there like there are economists who just say like I don't vote because I'm selfish and it doesn't pay me. All right, so I'll say all right, that's not really a great argument. You know, like even people who do this, you say, look, I've seen you do unselfish things. You're not nearly as selfish as you sound. But the argument that does make a lot of sense to me is when you are acting selfishly, you should go and think about your your philanthropic effort to get the most bang for your buck. And what I say is, unless you happen to live in a very tight swing state, you get a lot more bang for your buck with giving to effective charities, and there are good lists of effective charities. You can just go and Google it, effective altruism, and you'll get a list of ones where there is a very good bang for your buck. So I would just start there. Uh, so that's one. Uh, so secondly, I would just say that it just gives me a lot of personal agony to be part of this extremely dirty, sleepy system. I will say that too. Uh, yeah, what I you know, like, what I like, what I say there is: look, if I thought there was a high probability that I could change the outcome, then I would go and endure the sleaze for the betterment of mankind. I am I'm, I'm not that selfish, uh, but 
if it's just like a one in trillion chance, then no, I'm not going to go and torment myself by being part of a system that I just think is terrible. Well, when I when I make the, a, a similar argument or at least present that to students in class, I invariably one of the first things someone will say to me is, well, what if everyone thought like that? And, and I have my response, but what you, I know you've gotten that. So what's your response? Yeah, it's a very silly argument. It would apply to almost any decision. Like, I'm, I'm going to go and fly to Europe. What would happen if everybody tried to fly to Europe on Saturday? There would be mobs at the airport and people would be crushed to death. So you shouldn't do it. Like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to be a doctor. Well, what if everybody tried to be a doctor? Yeah, so, yeah, it's just not a very good argument. Immanuel Kant, notwithstanding this standard of, you know, like it can only be ethical if everybody could do it in some sense, does not make a lot of sense. There are, I know there are some philosophers who will try to salvage it and say, well, you have to redefine the standard. But in that case, I would say, fine, I'll redefine define the standard is what would happen if everybody allocated their philanthropic effort to get the most bang for its buck. And then I say that would be a fantastic outcome. Yeah. Well, you know, related to that, someone might say, well, you're, you're, you're taking advantage. You're a free rider because this is your civic duty. You know, it, don't talk to me about utility maximization and all that economist junk. You know, you're part of a community, man. And this community makes it possible for you to have the wonderful life and job and family that you have. And you owe them, damn it. So what, <laughs> what do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, I would say that if you're going to follow that argument, then there's a long list of things that you also should do. So you could say that just living in a decent society hinges upon you going and giving to charity. Uh, and therefore, you might say, so you're not giving to charity. But then you could say, well, it has to be this specific charity. And why that specific one? Well, it's got to be. You know, so you know, I used to say it's fairly arbitrary. If you were to say, look, you, know, you have some sort of a duty to go and do something philanthropic, and when you do it, you should try to get the biggest bang for your buck. I'd say that makes a great deal of sense. Uh, but the other, one, but the one that's got to be this exact thing, that one is hard for me to put my, to wrap my mind around, especially when we know it's just so ineffective. You know, like of course, if I were incredibly popular and people just did what I said, millions of people did what I said, then it would be a different story. Uh, I wish I was that popular, but I'm not. Right. And so it did. Yeah, now, I would also add now, this is, this is the sort of the bigger Jason Brennan point. Flips around and says, you know, if you do participate, but without putting in the necessary intellectual effort to actually make things better, then you're doing something very wrong because it really is sort of like saying it doesn't matter where you cut a person's brain, but just participate in the brain surgery. It's like, well, it should, if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't participate at all. Right. Which would suggest getting people to vote just simply by making it making it incredibly easy, convenient, without necessarily encouraging them to at the same time put more effort into it will not lead to better outcomes. We shouldn't expect that. Yeah, I mean, a much better public service campaign is, do you really, how much do you really know about this? If you don't know much about it, then don't participate and leave it to somebody that's thought about it more. Which is, and that can be taken in a couple of ways and sort of the very cynical way as well. That's a way to suppress voter turnout and be anti-democratic, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be necessarily. It's just asking more of people. Yeah, well, it's asking less, but it's saying instead of participating in the system where you're going to make it worse, then don't. Which is okay. easier. I would go the other way. I would okay. say, well, take a little more time to be informed before you participate yes. in the system. Right. You know, so you, know, you might say, look, the very best thing is to be very well informed and participate. The next best thing is not to participate. The I worst see. thing of all is to be uninformed and to participate. And if it's a choice between the last thing and, you know, again, for most people, it's really just a choice between two and three. So uh, it's better to not participate. 
you know, at, at one point, and I think in which of the essays, you write, politics isn't utterly hopeless, but it's mostly hopeless. Uh, and I, I think I, I think I disagree with you about that. I'm fairly certain I do, but maybe you can explain why you feel it's mostly, but not utterly hopeless. Well, you know, here's one fact that's weighed on me. It's like after the collapse of communism, after the dust settles, what is the best thing that has happened in all of world politics in the last 30 years? <laughs> and I just find it very hard to say anything notably good that has happened. There's been a lot of great economic progress, a lot of great technological progress. Uh, the, I would say uh, we have plenty of cultural progress. I think we've retrogressed in the last few years uh, with woke takeover of the arts, but still. Right? But in terms of a narrowly political thing that has happened that has just been great in the last 30 years, really struggle to come up with anything. And it's like, this is the planet. The whole planet really can't come up with much of anything good for three decades. This is a messed up system. I, I guess you I, have an answer to that. You have an answer to that, Michael? Well, like, yeah, I, I would say I, what's the best I, thing that's happened in world politics in the last 30 years. I, I would say that there, there's no, been no better time, uh, generally speaking, at least in the Yeah, yeah but, I, but you're weaseling out of the question. I know, like, I totally grant that the quality of life is, okay, is yeah, higher than ever. Fair enough. You're right. Like, <laughs> what actual policy change, regime change has been so great that you'll look at the last 30 years and say, wow. Now, yeah, like, of course, I'm choosing the cutoff selectively because collapse of communism, that's a wow. That's incredible. That's fantastic. I, I would uh, say. Away from Maoism, yeah. China, fantastic. I, I would say uh, a variety of issues involving uh, gay marriage and the acceptance of, uh, of uh, gay, gay people uh, just generally. Yeah, yeah that's, all, that's all you got for planet, all you got for planet Earth for 30 years. Well, I mean, you, you yeah, put me on the spot. Yeah, the gay is great, that one, so. the is great, but you know, like it's. Like, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll come back at you, and I'll say that I think your artificial timeline is far too short. And if we say expand that by another twenty, all of a sudden, I think things change considerably with the civil rights. So, yeah, and then yes. I, so the so the collapse of communism, that stuff was great, and there were there's a lot of other great fallout from that. Totally willing to admit that, but. Then if we expand, expand the timeline a bit more, it's like, Jesus Christ, we've got, we go from having the only communist country in the world be the Soviet Union to having it be, oh, well, like about, you know, pushing 2 billion people by the, by the, the peak of communism. So like some really horrible things happening as well. I mean, again, like, like, I mean, here's the thing is you can go back and say, oh, when mankind got rid of slavery, it's like, yeah, and then communism brought it back. Well, yeah, or in some ways, eighty yeah. percent of the population tied to the land on their slave labor uh, collective farms. Great. Yeah, I, I and I hear that, but but I still think, and and maybe you'll say it's too vague. I'm sure you will. That uh, if I if I could pick any any time to be alive and not knowing anything about my circumstances, I think I would probably pick 2023. Uh, so there's something well, I mean, to yeah, that. So yeah, yeah, probably me. Yeah, me too. Uh, but again, it's the question of quality of life as a combination of economics, technology, sure. politics, culture, and it is pol. And since you asked me about why I hate politics, yeah, sure, yeah, that, politics yeah. is that, that like it's, it's a it's a giant pile of fanatical promises, which in the end is delivered really just pile of disappointment. Yeah, it's a meanwhile, giant like with the, with the progress we have is because of these other things that haven't been strangled by government. But I don't think it's plausible to say, oh. Thank you, government, for giving us the internet. Thank you, Al Gore. <laughs> yeah, sure, you invented the internet, but maybe it would have happened otherwise. Oh, they're going to be—they're going to be listeners going to be screaming at me for not just 
going at you at that last point and you wisely raised it with just a couple of minutes. And so I'm going to put that aside. Maybe we'll talk about government strangling uh, the private sector some other day. But but I know you got to go. Yeah, so, so, by, so by the way, as a political scientist, I was thinking that your, that your answer to my challenge might be that the average level of democracy on some scores has actually risen over the last 30 years. Uh, I had a former student, Jeremy Horpadal, who's going over that. And then I went and I said, OK, look, technically you're right. But guess what? Uh, a lot of the movement was basically in between uh, this cat- these categories of mixed of like mixed democracies versus mostly autocracies, and then also there were some notable large backslidings, especially for China. Yeah, that's why I wouldn't so, know. I, that's why I wouldn't say that for yeah. exactly those reasons. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned about regression in, in that area in general. So, yeah. well, right. well, so let's, let, let's try there. to end on, on a positive note. Is there, is there anything you can look to in politics and at present in American politics that even if it doesn't maybe make you feel entirely optimistic, at least makes you say, eh, that's okay, I guess. I'll settle for that at this point, if you can give me that. Yeah, honestly, almost everything involved with Chris Rufo, uh, while I recognize that it's just a rounding error in the broad scheme of things, as a professor, this matters a lot to me. So if you readers don't know him, or if they know him only as a figure of hatred, uh, he is the intellectual who very plausibly is single is personally behind the uh, abolition of DEI in Florida and Texas. Um, most notably, like, he, like you know, he's done a lot. You know, he's also done you know just quite a bit to ra- uh, to raise awareness of left wing indoctrination in K twelve, and so he is single handedly going and um, you know, you know, to my mind is the, the, the critical figure in pushing back against our current McCarthyism, which I think is. Unfair to McCarthyism, I don't think it was ever as bad as what we have is right now. If someone were to say, well, now isn't that bad, and I'll say, all right, fine, then I guess McCarthyism was even less bad. Or if someone says McCarthyism is bad, I'll say, well, what we have is several times worse. I've, done, I, I've got a few pieces that I've written on this. So one, I was just comparing the loyalty O's at the University of California in the McCarthy era to the, uh, to the uh, diversity and inclusion statements that people had to write in order to get jobs there. And there's no comparison. The requirement, the, you know, the level of political orthodoxy, the political orthodoxy test is, is much, strict, much stricter today than it was back in the McCarthy era. And I think that's just generally true, that there is a, a level of, <coughs> excuse me, that there, you know, there, there is a, you know, a level of orthodoxy, woke orthodoxy, that is just much worse than things ever were you know, during the 1950s by almost any measure. The only measure where I think today's better is I don't think we've actually jailed anyone for anti-woke things. There were a few members of CPUSA that did get jailed. But in terms of the way that it affects normal life, I think things are much worse now than then. And Chris Rufo is pushing back. And as a result, we've had you know, several states that are changing. I would actually just say more generally, while this is not an overall improvement, what we've seen in the last few years is that federalism has just become a lot more important than it used to be. States are diverging in their policies. Uh, most notably during COVID, it was where it became very clear. And so really, if you didn't like what's going on in your state, it was possible. And a lot of people took advantage of the chance to move to another state. So I actually left Virginia and lived in Texas for three months in order to get away from the draconian COVID rules. Uh, so that, in a way, it made me more optimistic to say at least it wasn't the whole country. At least there's some variation. And I was actually amazed at how much variation there was because like, what DeSantis did, was doing in Florida a couple months after COVID broke out was... More radical, more radically libertarian than most libertarians that I talked to at the time. So I was surprised and gratified. 
So there, there are some, at least by, by your lights, uh, I know a lot of listeners are going, oh my God, oh, that's just the exact opposite of optimism. But at least from your perspective, Brian, we will close on that optimistic note. I should also point out that we had a great conversation not too long ago about DEI issues when uh, connected to your previous collection, Don't Be a Feminist. And that was a lot of fun. Listeners, you should check that out. And as always, Brian's uh, latest book collection, there'll be a link to that in the show notes and you should definitely check it out. Uh, as always, Brian, it's been, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. Oh, yeah. Fantastic, Michael. And again, the new book's name is Voters as Bad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. And yeah, you can get the book, uh, the paperback for 12 bucks on Amazon, ebooks nine ninety nine. And this is actually the fourth book in a series of essays of the best stuff that I wrote between, for my blog between 2005 and 2022. And on Amazon, you got all my other stuff too, including my New York Times bestselling graphic novel, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. So collect them all. All very cool. Definitely get a complete set. All right, Brian, thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. A lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.